Hey friends, this is Allison Steele, and you're listening to Unravel with Allison, a show where I take a concept that's got me in knots, and we unravel it together. Thanks for being here. Let's get started. Today's topic is resurrection. The act of bringing something that has disappeared or ended back into use or existence. So this is anything like from pulling your winter coat out of the closet to Christ rising from the dead. I decided on the topic of resurrection as I was exploring research, which is systematic investigation. But I decided to swerve on that because there is something about sourcing from yourself that resurrection delivers that research doesn't offer. And what does research give you? Answers from other people. So when I did my research, I discovered that I was resurrecting. So resurrecting essentially is to bring back to life. Re meaning again, like remix or before, like rewind. Sir, meaning over and above. And erect, without getting saucy, is upright or like building or constructing. So resurrecting is building that relationship again with something that has this meaning over and above you. Something that you look up to. Something that you reach for. So it's bringing that relationship back to life. I like to think of it like broken down as to like resurrection. So res as like resolution. And this isn't like resolution like you have to resolve a problem. There's some something to be resolved. I like to think of resolution as um, like imaging. To have a sharp resolution visually means that you have a clear picture. No dead pixels. <laughs> so for me, the res is like that visual resolution. Clear, crisp image. And again, without getting too saucy, but we're still going to use it that way, um, erection is like being turned on, enlightened. Uh, for me, that also takes like, you know, I don't know that physical sense. You know, I know what it's like to feel compelled or amused or enlightened or drawn to or excited because of. So mixing those two definitions together, it's like having a clear image on something previously that I used to adore that is now coming back to life and enlightening me in this moment. So I don't seek to resurrect necessarily. It's more like a research and then that leads to resurrection. What did you want to be when you were little? What job did you want? Who did you want to be when you grew up? I don't ask those questions often, but when I feel these resurrecting feelings, it's usually tied to a question like that. Or what legacy would you want to leave behind? Because in researching another's legacy, we're bringing that back to life and experiencing it now in this moment. And if you're enlightened by it, it's a resurrection. I don't really think about a legacy that I leave behind, but my name is actually a legacy. So when my parents were on the way to the hospital to, um, for one of my mom's checkup appointments, my dad brought up the idea of naming me Allison, but that wasn't the name that they had previously decided on, but he liked the name. Additionally, my mom's best friend name was Allison, so she liked the name. And when they get to the doctor's appointment, they realize my mom is in labor, they go to the hospital and she has me, they name me Allison. And I have my dad's last name, so naturally that's just um, the legacy that most of us tend to lead towards. But when it came to naming my first kid, I had a really hard time because I was so concerned with the legacy. We had a boy's name picked out already, and we were kind of stuck on the girl's name. My dad one day had sent us a text message. Well, for background, his dad's name is Robert. His mom's name is Charlene. So he sends me a text and says, if it's a boy, Robbie. If it's a girl, Charlie. Let me tell you, we've been through all the girl names and we did not like anything we were coming across. We didn't like anything that felt good. We couldn't think of anything like that we wanted to call our daughter. 
that we wanted to think of her as. Like, it's a really weird thing naming a whole entire person. <laughs> well, we could not get that girl name figured out. But when I got this text message, I was like, ooh, Charlie's good. Charlie's real good. One, like my dad had in mind, um, named after his mother, my grandma, lover. She is worthwhile of having that type of legacy. Also, my best friend in school growing up, her name was Charlie. I didn't realize it until like right now, but she actually hated her name um, growing up. Sorry, Charlie. <laughs> but because of those two reasons. Oh, and a TV show we were watching at the time called Revolution. And it's like a post-apocalyptic world where like all of the technology is just gone and done for. So one of the characters in that show, her name is Charlie and she's a total badass. So again, everything about Charlie was just like ringing true, feeling right in that moment. So that's what we decided to name my daughter. And for her middle name, we like the androgyny of Charlie. We like the androgyny of Reese. I adore Reese Witherspoon, Legally Blonde. Like, I'm here for that feminist shit. So uh, we named her Charlie Reese. But she's got a nice little legacy name, too. I didn't consider my legacy growing up, though. I kind of always thought that I'd get lost in the mix of history. So I never really concerned myself with what I was, with the permanence, I suppose. But I did what I was supposed to do. You know, went to school, extracurriculars, had a job, went to college. When I first went to college... I went to the University of Toledo as a pharmacology student because you could go to school for like ever and then when you're done make a bunch of money and that's pretty much like the extent of the thought that I put into that. Like when we were applying for schools, I was considering applying to a couple different ones, but a representative from the University of Toledo came into our high school. We sat down, had a meeting, shook hands, signed some paperwork, and I was accepted into UT. So I was like, all right, I'm not... I'm uninspired to go to college. I'm doing this because I have to. This is convenient. My aunt lives in Toledo, so I have some like family support also. It was just like an instant acceptance. And um, really, that's how it played out. But pharmacology sounded great, again, because I was good at school and I could be in school forever. Suppose I would have it figured out by the time I graduated. I dropped out like the absolute last second you could before the withdrawal date. I think we started in August and I dropped out in October. I couldn't stand it there. I was doing really bad in school. I wasn't, I thought I was doing good, but then like there was a whole entire portion of online testing that was existing that I didn't know about and I was not participating in. So like my grades were trashed in like two of my classes. They could not fit me into whatever math class I was supposed to be in. I never got placed where I needed to. I couldn't stand my roommate. I couldn't stand myself. I needed to not be there. I dropped out and I moved away. Now, while I was in high school, I worked in restaurants. So like when I moved to Dayton, I figured I would just get a job right away. So I started working with a company in Dayton that I worked with previously in, um, in my hometown. So I'm working in restaurants for about a year. And I decide like, okay, I probably should go back to school. I was embarrassed. Everybody was getting their associate's degree and I was still doing nothing. So I went to our community college website out here and I just started scrolling and thought like, can I do this? Would I like to do this? Can I do this? Would I like to do this? And mostly everything, I was like, no, I'm not doing that. That doesn't sound good. That doesn't sound fun. I don't care what it pays. I'm not living my life like that. When I got to hospitality management, I was like, oh, okay. Like I'm already doing this, which means that I can probably pass and like do well in school. But if I'm already doing it on some level, like I think back then I was like working in the kitchen and as a cashier. So it was kind of back and forth, but I still wasn't old enough to serve alcohol yet. So I was kind of stuck where I was in the restaurant industry in that moment. But going back to school, I figured, OK, I can go to school for a couple years. And then when I graduate, I'll basically be 21. 
and at 21, you can be a manager. So that made sense to me. I saw a clear path and I thought, like, you don't even need a degree for that job. But if you have one, it does give you a leg up financially. Felt great about it. Decided I would go and get that degree and never go back to school again. And the thought of going to school sounded like a nightmare. But I had the experience to back it up. I stayed, in, I stayed working the entire time. The second um, I graduated and was able to become a manager, like I was already a trainer by that point. So it was like the natural next step. And my life just like started playing itself out with that restaurant industry umbrella for the next 10 years. That work was very draining for me. It was a lot on your body. It was a lot on your mind. It was a lot on your family. It was too much, too much, and the payoff was not worth it. I did everything I did so I can live the life I want to outside of work, to have fun and go on vacations. I wanted to be able to afford a nice life, to be able to afford a good house to come home to, to be able to travel in a decent car. I wanted to afford my lifestyle and restaurant management allowed that. I made decent money. I didn't get to actually enjoy too much though because because <laughs> I was constantly working. We're talking like this is 50 to 60 hours a week kind of stuff. And you're working mid shifts, you're working closed shifts, you're working open shifts. It's inconsistent. Your staff is turning over constantly. Your customers are turning over constantly. There's so many new faces, which is awesome, but then it's a lot to constantly adapt to. It's a it's just so many people all the time, so many details all the time. Like you get burnt out really quickly. And then once you push through that burnout, like you maintain that burnout for so long until it completely crushes your soul. Mine, <laughs> it completely crushed my soul, especially like perpetuating the stuff that I don't appreciate. It feels, it feels extremely lonely. Like human connection is frowned upon in management, unless you're resolving a customer issue and that helps. Like if there's no money involved, don't be a human. Fraternization is like forbidden. I'm spending 50 to 60 hours a week with these people that I'm not even allowed to be friends with, technically. Like we can't spend time together outside of work. There are professional lines that like they can talk to each other, but I can't talk to them about certain things. And it was good. It was, it's important to have professional boundaries, I suppose. But as a human being doing that behavior for 60 hours a week, like I worked too often to maintain close relationships outside of work other than the people that I lived with. I stopped getting invitations because I never even went to anything. Like, thanks for the, you know, I can't go to a cookout at three on Saturday. Are you kidding me? No, I'm working. I can't come to your event in an evening. I'm working. I'm free on Tuesday afternoon, but then I work at six. Like, there's no time to maintain relationships. So at work, I have clear boundaries. I was a handbook person because I, like I said, I was trying to afford the life that I wanted to live outside of work. So like work was where I was selling myself short so I could get that payout on the back end. I was not willing to break the rules or get in trouble or anything that would keep me from the life that I wanted to maintain again outside of the workplace. So I did follow the rules like as best as I could. I followed the rules to a very annoying degree and I was going to adhere to those standards as a manager and expect the same from my employees. And I shoved all of my feelings down when customers would like try to break me screaming in my face over something that was wrong. Just over and over, I constantly just have to take this part of life that I don't appreciate so I can appreciate like the 20% that I'm like awake to experience my real life. After so long, it just doesn't cut it anymore. 
back when I was working as a server, like going into a four hour shift, hoping to make enough to pay your car insurance. But then like you clock out and you can't even afford gas to get home. But then other times you clock in and work for two hours and make 300 bucks walking out the door. And it's like a constant balancing act that requires this insane discipline. If you want to afford your bills, you have to act as if you're worth being tipped when you like don't even think you can afford to survive much longer. Then you call off. So like if I have a kid get sick, I have to call off. And then what? The company suffers and they will let you know that when you call in to call off. You're expected to get your shift covered and if you don't, you get a write-up. If you get your shift covered, pretty much all is well. You get an excused absence if you have a doctor's note. However, we don't offer health insurance. So your visit is likely going to be paid out of pocket or state funded, in which case they probably can't see you for a couple months anyway. But let's assume you go to the doctor, you miss work, you don't make the money that you thought you would that day, you pay the doctor for an evaluation... You get your note so you don't get fired. The doctor says, like, this is just one of those waited out kind of things. So you can't even, like, you're not even being helped. You're just not making money and spending money. When you're in that survival mode of, like, I want to be able to afford the life I want to live, look at what you're perpetuating there. And then as a manager, when somebody calls off because they're sick, who's covering your shift? Okay, well, have you called anybody? And they're, like, on their deathbed. And I'm just like, you haven't called anyone? Well, so-and-so is not here. Can you, can you text them real quick? Like, they've got other things to worry about. It is not even, we put so much responsibility on people that we won't take responsibility for in management and then act like it's this, like, bold culture. And it's really gross to keep doing this to each other. Like, you're not healing anybody. You're not helping anybody. And you're so desperate to return to this place that keeps you in this spiral because you literally cannot afford to do anything else. It's a wild industry. But I could not keep putting people in those positions. Like there were certain things that I would say that made me not want to show my face. I'm not a shame person. But back then, I was so ashamed of my behavior, what I was willing to do and say against myself for the sake of a company. Like there was one time I walked in the door. I walked in the door and my boss pulls me aside. Says they've counted down the drawers for the day and it's coming up $5 short. And they counted it twice. And I need to address it with that employee. And it was like good for my development to address it directly with that employee. Granted, I never counted the drawers. The employee counted the drawer when they first got it out and they said the drawer was good. So then when, the, when my boss came through behind her and counted it and it was short, the indication there, like there's an accusation that she took that $5, naturally. So I'm the one expected to have this conversation even though I didn't count the drawers and I wasn't there for any of the experience. But I sit down with the two of them and start to explain what happened. And I'm tearing up. Because I can tell that this is not okay. This is not my place to do this. I don't have a leg to stand on, but his word. And the person that I'm talking to in front of me, like I'm making this accusation when I don't have anything to say for it. And I hired this person who is a good person. And I just kind of trust not to do that kind of stuff. But here I am having to have this conversation. And as soon as I start to tear up, my boss takes over. He handles the remainder of the conversation. And I still mentally, in that moment, am taking notes of how my behavior is obviously inappropriate. I'm listening to the specific words that he uses so that I can replicate them later when I'm inevitably met with this situation again down the road. But all in all, he miscounted. We put her through that. She was in tears too. It was dumb. It was so dumb. But it got to a point where I was used to working 50 to 60 hours as a GM and I came across a different job, an assistant manager making $15,000 a year more than what I was making as a general manager and working 45 hours a week. It's, it is, it's like the absolute best case scenario that you can find in the restaurant industry. That's where I was working when I walked away. 
because it's not actually what I wanted. And then I realized that I had no idea what I wanted for myself anymore. But I was so tired of maintaining barriers that broke my heart every day, forcing behaviors that made me hate myself. And I needed to be around people that I was allowed to actually participate with. I needed space to exist again without specific restraint. I needed to learn how to access my authenticity because it had been masked with professionalism. It's like I didn't know what feelings were anymore, except at the extremes when they had to force themselves through because anything in that middle was just squashed. When I finally walked away from that job, I did. I felt dead inside. And honestly, it was like so much lack of control, but having so much power and just like suppressing that for years. And that was all I could do. And this authenticity was like resurrected a whole reanimation of myself that has taken years to lean into because it was a disaster at first. All those yucky things that I pushed to either extreme came back at like full power still in those extreme emotions, either like way down or way up. Like I was crying constantly because it was either so bad or so good. Like there was no silent middle ground. There was just constant chaos and I couldn't find that balance. But again, I had shoved those feelings back for years that it took, it took years to undo it. Thankfully, not as many as it took to implant. <laughs> this reanimation, though, this authenticity, whatever, it made me realize that I'm not supposed to be anything, per se. I'm just supposed to exist perpetually, intentionally, because there's too much of life to experience to perpetuate these systems that I don't value. That being said, I went back to school, and that was a resurrection process as well. When I went back to school this time, I didn't think of like, okay, what do I want to be when I grow up? What do I want to do? What do I want to get paid for? I wanted to learn something new and I found somewhere to do it. And it's, it's been a beautiful tool to like boost my creativity and really like learn how to integrate with peers again, because I haven't really had more than like two peers at a time in a management team. And even then, most of those years, I was the general manager where we still weren't exactly peers. And it's very, very lonely to have these professional barriers, to have these people look at you in a rough situation and know that like you can take away their livelihood in a heartbeat and me doing everything in my power to not have that happen. Being in school is fascinating though. And again, I had more questions than I had answers. My humanities classes are absolutely wild for me. <laughs> like I don't think about environmental science. I don't think about political science. I don't think about these things too often in the sense that they're presented in textbooks. I was always kind of redirected to, like I redirected myself to different questions. So in like um, political science class, you know, we're talking about government. We go to this website that has like polls taken about like how people feel regarding like different social issues in the country. And it breaks down um, the polls into like these different charts. So there's like a U.S. perspective. And like I live in Ohio, so there's my state's perspective as well. And we were talking about the different social issues and if they actually reflect what people around us think and all that kind of stuff. That's like the, how it was prompted. And like the, the polls kind of offered these different, yes, this is okay, but only if it's like this. No, that's not okay because of this. So there were some variations and we were kind of talking about like those differences that keep bills from passing or whatever. But for me, I found it most fascinating that the preference in the polls almost never match the actual laws that we had in place. Not even just those variables of like, yes and, or yes but, but the flat out like yes and no's, all encompassing of those itty bits of other parts, they don't reflect our laws. Why do we spend so much time insisting on sustainability when we just 
barely tolerate what we've created. This is obviously not what we want. And again, I know there's variables here, like who's taking these polls? How much? <laughs> I get it. But on a day-to-day, -day, we can see that that's pretty much the reflection. Why was I working 60 hours a week to enjoy 10 of them? So now that I was back in school, I wasn't working, which is the first time in like forever for me as an adult, other than when I took maternity leave. But I had holidays off. So that was new. I went to my uh, to visit my mom for Easter and she had moved into a new house and they were transitioning everything over. She gave me a box of the stuff that was left in the previous house that I had left behind from high school. Resurrection. So many things that I forgot existed. Like I had notes from old friends that were like intricately folded into like footballs and like these nice little cushioned <laughs> squares. But like even opening them and reading them, we're so dumb. We're so funny. Like it was beautiful. And I had like printouts of like instant messenger conversations. Like I remember the one that I was reading was hilarious to me because I printed it out because I needed proof that I wasn't lying to my mom. <laughs> My mom had gotten a call from a friend's mom about an incident that we were all involved in and everybody was getting in trouble over it. And like, I wasn't there for a lot of pieces. And I was very confused as like how my name got brought into stuff after like, I wasn't there when all of these accusations were actually happening. It was like this person was at my house when they actually weren't. So my mom wasn't home. She couldn't say like, oh no, they weren't here. My mom comes to me saying like, why is so-and-so in our house when we're at home? And why when so-and-so is in our house, are you guys doing these things? I think I was in like seventh or eighth grade. But yeah, I talked to one of my friends online <laughs> and I was like, hey, so-and-so's mom just called my mom. Do you know why? Like, what's going on here? Because I only knew from my mom and I didn't know why I was brought into it. But so was this third person. So I asked this third person and it's a whole conversation. And then at the end, they're like, listen, we lied to her mom and said that we were at your house. We didn't think anybody would check up because your mom's not usually home. But it doesn't matter if my mom's home. She's got a cell phone and she is absolutely going to talk to every other mom too, especially if they're calling her asking about stuff going on at our house. My mom is available even if she's not there, but I'm in trouble. <laughs> so I'm trying to figure this thing out. And then they're like, yeah, we said you just because like, even when you do get in trouble, you're not in that much trouble. When this person gets in trouble, this person is grounded. They don't get to see people. They don't get to talk to people. They don't get to pick their own outfits. They don't get to pick their own hair. They don't, they get all control completely taken away from them. So they sacrificed my name to save theirs. And I printed this all out <laughs> so I could show it to my mom. And it was just absolutely wild. And even like there were petty underlying fights. This was not like a conversation of like, this hurt my feelings when you did this or why is this happening? It was like, so-and-so said this, so-and-so said that. Why are you doing that? Well, that's rude. Like <laughs> they are so funny. I found cards from my high school graduation. And it was so funny. At the time, I just thought about this story this week too. At the time um, that I was going through all of this, I had, um, I had money in a card from my aunt. And I thought it was so funny. And I texted her at the time too and was like, oh my gosh, I just found this money from my graduation. Thank you. Love you. It was still in the card. This is the part that I remembered this week. It was still in the card because I owed her like $200. And I set her money aside to pay her back with it because I didn't feel right taking more of her money. When I went to Disney, she gave me a card and said, like, spend what you want to, be reasonable, and pay me back when you can afford it, but enjoy your trip. And I did, about $250 worth. And I couldn't afford that. <laughs> 
So I saved the money that she had given to me so I could pay it back to her. And over the years, I did end up paying her back, which was funny because when I finally like paid it off, it was mostly a lump sum. And she was like, oh, I don't remember this. I was like, oh, I promise you that I do. And I owe you this. Like, please, please take it. <laughs> and she did. So then it was like a super bonus when I came back around to that card. I had my old journal, school pictures over the years, Snapple lids that I collected with like the fun facts on them, but just old stuff of mine that was new to me again, just a complete resurrection. But then I found something really cool that I didn't think was supposed to be in there. Um, it was a wall hanging, a key hook display. And when I pulled it out, I asked my mom, like, is this for me? Because this um, the house that my mom moved out of, she was living in my grandparents' home for a few years at Years after they had passed it, you know, it was my mom's home and they had moved away from that. So it was actually like not just the house that I mostly grew up in, but that she also and my aunts and uncle grew up in. And after my grandparents passed, or they still had this key hook display hanging on the wall. It's painted on and it says, don't worry if your work is small and your rewards are few. Remember that the mighty oak was once a nut like you. That's precious. So this, um, this key hook display, Virginia Beach, Virginia is where it came from which means I probably got it in 1991. My brother was born in 90 at the end of the year. And then my grandparents came to visit after he was born, but they never visited down there when I was born. If I'm not mistaken, they had just made the one trip and they brought it home and they hung it on their wall. And that's the part that I could read from when I was a kid looking up at this thing. Taped to the top portion of it was a newspaper clipping. And my grandpa was big on clipping newspaper stuff. He used to like save comic strips for me when I'd come over to visit and like, oh, I thought of you and I saw this one. But yeah, he clipped. So he clipped and taped this onto the top. And it says, whatever government can do to the most unpopular, least well-connected, poorest, most despised member of society, it can do to you. If you allow it to persecute the people you don't like, it will eventually get around to you. Ooh, after quitting my job, I realized like that's how I felt. So even though this pertains to the government, I see that it applies in all of our human interactions. Societally, however, like however you treat the worst, like you're leaving that open for yourself. So after I'm back home, I do an online class of uh, mass media. And the subject for that week was newspapers. So I've got this box of stuff that I brought home with me and I'm looking down and I spent Spot, the key hook display. I'm like, I wonder if I can find the original article that my grandpa had clipped that piece from. And my class didn't start for a stretch. So I decided like before class started, I was just going to sit down and try to figure, try to track this down. And I did. The article was printed in the Chronicle Telegram, which is like our hometown paper in 1983 titled Just 546 People to Blame for U.S. Errors. And it's a syndicated column out of Orlando, Florida that ended up in my hometown newspaper for my grandpa to clip in 1983. Over the years, this journalist has revised that same article. And before he retired, he released it again with his newest twist on it. And I'm going to go ahead and read that to you. Since it has been like edited and re-released over the years, the part that was clipped is actually not present in the most recent update. But this column was from 2001. It'll be kind of obvious uh, when we get into it. Politicians are the only people in the world who create problems and then campaign against them. 
Have you ever wondered if both Democrats and Republicans are against deficits? Why do we have deficits? Have you ever wondered if all the politicians are against inflation and high taxes? Why do we have inflation and high taxes? You and I don't propose a federal budget. The president does. You and I don't have the constitutional authority to vote on appropriations. The House of Representatives does. You and I don't write the tax code. Congress does. You and I don't set fiscal policy. Congress does. You and I don't control monetary policy. The Federal Reserve Bank does. 100 senators, 435 congressmen, one president, and nine Supreme Court justices equates to 545 human beings out of the 300 million that are directly, legally, morally, and individually responsible for the domestic problems that plague this country. I excluded the members of the Federal Reserve Board because that problem was created by Congress. In 1913, Congress delegated its constitutional duty to provide a sound currency to a federally chartered but private central bank. I excluded all the special interests and lobbyists for a sound reason. They have no legal authority. They have no ability to coerce a senator, a congressman, or a president to do one cotton-picking thing. I don't care if they offer a politician $1 million in cash. The politician has the power to accept or reject it. No matter what the lobbyist promises, it's the legislator's responsibility to determine how he votes. Those 545 human beings spend much of their energy convincing you that what they did is not their fault. They cooperate in this common con regardless of party. What separates a politician from a normal human being is an excessive amount of gall. No human being would have the gall of a speaker who stood up and criticized the president for creating deficits. The president can only propose a budget. He cannot force Congress to accept it. The Constitution, which is the supreme law of the land, gives sole responsibility to the House of Representatives for originating and approving appropriations and taxes. Who is the Speaker of the House now? She and fellow House members, not the President, can approve any budget they want. If the President vetoes it, they can pass it over his veto if they agree to. It seems inconceivable to me that a nation of 300 million cannot replace 545 people who stand convicted by present facts of incompetence and irresponsibility. I can't think of a single domestic problem that is not traceable directly to those 545 people. When you fully grasp the plain truth that 545 people exercise the power of the federal government, then it must follow that what exists is what they want to exist. If the tax code is unfair, it's because they want it unfair. If the budget is in the red, it's because they want it in the red. If the Army and Marines are in Iraq and Afghanistan, it's because they want them in Iraq and Afghanistan. If they do not receive Social Security but are on an elite retirement plan not available to people, it's because they want it that way. There are no insoluble government problems. Do not let these 545 people shift the blame to bureaucrats whom they hire and whose jobs they can abolish, to lobbyists whose gifts and advice they can reject, to regulators whom they give the power to regulate and from whom they can take this power. Above all, do not let them con you into the belief that there exist disembodies mystical forces like the economy, inflation, or politics that prevent them from doing what they take an oath to do. Those 545 people and they alone are responsible. They and they alone have the power. They and they alone should be held accountable by the people who are their bosses, provided the voters have the gumption to manage their own employees. That one's a doozy, guys. I'm not going to sit here and complain about the government or say that we have a job to do or anything like that. But 
the concept embodied that I pulled from that article is that we're doing what we want to do. It's worthwhile to be honest about your intentions. Just because the system is the way that it is, do you have to tolerate it? In the restaurant industry as a manager, I did not have to follow the rules. But if I did, I could have lost my job. And I was not willing to take that risk. I was willing to sell myself short because that's how it worked. And it wasn't really working for anybody. It especially was not working for me. I understand professionalism and why it's important, but it's only important because of the crap that we do to each other that made these rules and these societal structures the way that we are is because of how we treat each other when we don't have rules in place. I decided that I wasn't going to follow those rules anymore because that made me feel disgusting. And I suppose I get this idea again because my grandpa's the one who clipped that original piece that led me to this article. And I really admired my grandpa because he was very accepting of basically anybody. He felt like every human being deserved peace in their existence. He was involved in prison ministries. He was involved with his Catholic church. And he didn't preach, but he shared. But he was the safest person I have ever known. And when I got to read that full article, not only did I agree with the content of like, why do we put up with the shit that we put up with when we don't have to? Why do we treat people this terrible? Why do we perpetuate these horrible systems when we don't have to? It's honestly like, I can't think of an alternative. I went back to school. I'm not making any money. I don't know what I'm going to do when I get out of here and I have to get back into professionalism in that sense. I'm not comfortable with the idea of diving back in. But I don't know what any alternative, like I don't have great alternatives to explore in the meantime. So that's why I'm excited to focus on my schoolwork and what I do. Another reason that that article was resurrecting for me is because the journalist's name is Charlie Reese. That's his first and last name. And that is my daughter's first and middle name, Charlie Reese that my grandpa clipped, likely in 1983 and held on to it, brought that key holder back in 1991 and taped that clipping to it at some point. I was born in 1992, and that hung in their home for years. And on that Easter, it got to be in my hands in the 2020s. And the name was Charlie Reese. Whatever legacy you plan for, I mean, there's stuff that's just going to sneak up on you that can't prepare you for that. I like to joke that my dad came up with my daughter's name because of that text message, but maybe my grandpa implanted it with this key holder years ago. The Beatles song Yesterday goes, Yesterday, all my troubles seem so far away. Now it looks as though they're here to stay. Oh, I believe in yesterday. Basically, everything was cool yesterday, and now today everything's falling apart, and now it's like your whole life changed overnight. But yesterday there was love, and that's what you kind of want to get back to. And it feels so far away. I never had a yesterday moment like that. Not with work. I have in other parts of life where it was like, you could get some news dropped and you're like, oh my God, what? That's how I felt when my grandpa passed. That was a yesterday moment for me. Everything was fine yesterday and today it sucks because it snuck up on us and we didn't get to say goodbye. You can say everything happens for a reason, but in that like 10 year old's brain, this was not supposed to happen. That was a yesterday moment. But with work, I didn't have that yesterday moment where I was like, wow, this job sucks and I can't stand myself doing it for another day. It was like, it started with my mom working in a restaurant and she would call me up to help bus tables. And I would show up and help bus tables for a couple hours and then I would go home and my grandma would drive me to and from. And then like in the summer, we dressed up as like 
mascots me and my best friend did for that restaurant and like stood outside with signs trying to like entice people to come in. I was a hot dog. <laughs> and then I worked at Steak and Shake making milkshakes. Moved away, went to college, dropped out, back in a restaurant, same thing I was doing before. And then started dating my manager and worked at a different restaurant. And it was that restaurant that professionally developed me. I started off with them as a cashier. I worked my way into the kitchen. I worked my way onto the floor. As I was doing all three of those jobs, I was also going to school. I was promoted to a trainer. I helped with new store opens. I helped develop training material. I was bought in and I tried so hard. I became a manager. When our company was developing a new concept for franchise, I got an opportunity with the same company to open a restaurant as a general manager. And I wanted that job. I did everything I could possibly think of. I did all the professional steps and took the interviews in front of like a panel of the owners, which made me want to throw up. But I tried to be like calm and cool. And I, I knew my shit and I cared and I was not going to not care. And I was not going to be caught looking stupid either. Part of me doing the right thing was because I wanted to not get fired. But there's also this integrity piece that is like, you are allowed to check up on me and you will not find anything. Like, I am not one of those people that you are going to be blindsided by at work. You can trust that if I am there, things will be okay. You can trust that if I'm not the general manager, I'm going to behave as though they are right next to me. I still tried to have integrity, even though I couldn't be who I wanted to be. I still cared about being true to what I was doing, even if it wasn't true to myself. My yesterday moment came when I quit my job. And instead of that longing moment of like, everything was okay yesterday and now today it's terrible, it was reversed. And this is like that primary resurrection feeling of yesterday was so terrible and today is beautiful. The nuttiest thing about it is that it's available the entire time, but it's buried under something where you can't see it. Like stuff from childhood, when it was re-delivered to me, I forgot some of this existed. Some of the messages I wrote with people who don't exist anymore came alive again as I'm reading our notes back and forth about how shitty the world is. And it breaks my heart that, that they never grew out of that and then they're not here with us anymore. I started reading the Bible and there's a lot of words that I feel need another look. Left and right, for example... It is absurd that nuns would go around smacking knuckles if you're left-handed. That one particularly bothers me because I'm left-handed. <laughs> but left and right presented in the Bible are not directional. There is what's right and there is what's left. And this especially bothers me when we get into like these what would Jesus do bracelets. Because Jesus is a very interesting character who does what is right for him. He still acknowledges the free will of others, but he also embodies his. He'll tell you about yourself. He'll flip a table if you start selling stuff where you shouldn't be selling stuff. It doesn't matter about your laws if you're not allowed to work on the Sabbath. If he sees someone to heal on the Sabbath, he is going to put some work in and heal somebody on the Sabbath. He's not doing, he's not following the rules. He's doing what's right because he can't walk by somebody suffering and not do shit about it. Because when that disappears, what's left? That shit ain't right. It's not about left and right handed. And it's not what would Jesus do if Jesus were here in this moment next to you holding your hand? How would he tell you to behave? What would be good in his eyes? That's how religion asks us to consider our behavior in relation to the laws, to the holy scriptures, to the way shower's example. And Jesus is the way shower. But my dude, I have to tell you, 
He's not showing you how to behave. He's showing you to source from within yourself to decide how to behave. The morals that he supported were his own. He also valued his education because it's not like he was just some carpenter. He was actually taught a lot, but he knew what he felt was right and wrong and he stood by it and he didn't let himself get lost in the mix. He showed up everywhere he went. That's right. That's the next right thing. What would Jesus do is not a call to action to behave in the peaceful manner that Jesus is portrayed in. What would Jesus do is a call to action to consider what's right for you so you don't perpetuate what's left. The Bible even says the meek inherit the earth. Do you want to keep inheriting this? If you're supposed to live on earth as it is in heaven, you want to perpetuate this? I don't have the answers. I don't know what else to do, but I'm saying it's worth consideration and I don't think a whole lot of us are considering it right now. When you do what's right for you and you realize that you could have been doing this every single day, but have opted out of it, for one reason or another, you are betraying yourself on the regular. You're hurting yourself. You're breaking your heart. Stop doing it. When I got that key holder, that was like resurrecting my grandpa. This was like, holy crap, this was theirs and I get it. And it was a connection for me that was very important. Even though it's, it's just stuff, it made my heart so happy. Finding that article, realizing that like my grandpa who I idled had clipped it from an art from a journalist named Charlie Reese. And that's what I ended up naming my daughter. Like now we joke that my grandpa named my daughter along with my dad. The grandpa I speak of is on my mom's side of the family. So it's, it's a hoop, you know, but of course it comes together like that. How beautiful is that? In the book of Revelations, they talk about the last days. And keep in mind, this is called Revelations. I haven't read it, <laughs> but I'm still going to talk about it. I think of a revelation like a revolution, like everything does kind of circle around, revealing relations, revelations. So we read these and think of it as the days to come, when our time is ending, when our days are over, the end of our collective days, when the world is over and we experience heaven. I'm very much looking forward to actually reading this part because as I have redefined left and right in the Bible, I also have something to say about our last days. And this ties into yesterday because when I quit my job, I realized that this was available to me yesterday. And the same shit with all your secrets and all the stuff that you hide about yourself, whether it's secrets or whether it's your creativity, your unique comedic influence. Your weirdness is something that we all need right now, mine and yours. And it's time to like call this authenticity in and start sharing it with each other. It does not matter that we don't agree. We have to stop caring about that stuff and we have to be willing to talk to people beyond our niche groups. We were looking for our tribe within the niche. If somebody was talking to me about diversity in these schools recently, there's a charter school and parents were like, okay, well, we're thinking about pulling our kid from charter to go to public because of the diversity that they will have in a public school education. The educators at the charter school disagreed. They respected that notion, but thought like, but really brought it to the attention of, okay, this student is gonna have access to like 300 people in their class. It is very diverse. Who are they gonna hang out with? They're gonna hang out with the six people who like the same things that they do. They are going to fall into a niche and they are going to perpetuate themselves, which is okay. There's nothing wrong with that, but if you're actually looking for genuine diversity, the charter school, well, yeah, they might only have eight kids in their grade, but some of them have families that are paying their way through this. Some of them are on complete scholarship. There are different ethnicities, but again, it is limited to the eight within the group. But these eight are forced to work with each other. 
They must adapt to and with each other to move on. They learn integration. They learn how to share and be authentic, hopefully. No, but I genuinely, I'm looking forward to reading the book of Revelations with this last day's end time lens of not being the end-all, be-all mystical future, but as our previous days, our last days, our left days, what was left behind, or our end times when we choose to end this horrible behavior and do anything else. Resurrection is important. Stay enlightened. Keep looking around for stuff. When stuff is cool, be excited about it. Who cares if it's an anomaly or a coincidence? If you're inspired, just be inspired. If you're amused, just be amused. But do right by yourself. If you're not living in your authenticity, it's time for a resurrection. Start exploring who you are again. And remember what feels right. Thanks for listening to another episode of Unravel with Allison. If you have any feedback, questions, want to chit-chat, or stay up to date on new releases, follow me on Instagram at Allison K. Steele. Let's keep in touch. Again, thanks for listening, and I'll catch you next episode.